Hey, faithful listener. Thanks for tuning in to the P40 Ministries daily podcast. This podcast is dedicated to helping you grow spiritually so you can grow personally. Let's grow together by building a consistent Bible reading routine. This is Jen, your host, and today we will be discussing the book of Exodus. Hey, good morning, friends and faithful listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to the P40 Ministries podcast with your host, Jen. But also, I have a great guest speaker coming on the podcast this morning. And uh, I've been a fan of him for quite some time. I've been one of his fans. And uh, this is Gregory Kokel. And no, he's not related to me. (laughs) We have the same last name, but it's spelled completely different. He spells his name K-O-U-K-L, and I spell mine differently. But he is the president and founder and owner of Stand to Reason, str.org, and I will drop a link to that in the bio of this podcast episode, but he also has some fantastic books. One is called Tactics, and I bought this book at Barnes & Noble about a year ago. I actually have the study guide for it as well, and uh, was planning on using the study guide for um, my college and career class that I teach on Friday nights, but that was before I even asked Greg to get on the podcast. (laughs) So yeah, I've been a fan of his for a while, but uh, he also has another book called The Story of Reality, and I don't know a lot about this one. Greg, could you actually um, inform the listeners of the podcast a little bit about this book? Yeah, sure. And I I have to admit, it's a little bit unusual talking to someone else who has the same last name, at least sounding as as a homonym. (laughs) But uh, and my niece is named Jen. So uh, that's that adds to the oddness. But um, and I don't own Stand to Reason. I was the founder and the president, but it's a 501c3. So I just work. Oh, sorry. I'm still the boss kind of. But uh, actually, I got a great team of people who does the work for me. But uh, the story of reality, I, I, I have been wanting to write something like this for a long, long time, and it really is meant to lay out the basic Christian story from the beginning to the end. And in our case, our story is not one that starts once upon a time. It's a, it's a true story, and um, but it does have a plot to it. And a lot of Christians don't understand the plot, and consequently, they uh, don't understand the story. Uh, they get things mixed up. And if we understand the story, the problem of evil, for example, isn't the problem for us that many people think it is. Uh, it, our whole story is about that. And it has a solution. It tells how it started, how it ends. Um, And that Jesus is the only way. Well, that's offensive to a lot of people, but there's a reason for that in the story. And that is singular problems, like the problem of evil, often have singular solutions. And then I explain how that works. And so basically, it's classical Christianity writ broad. I my goal was to try to do something like C.S. Lewis did 75 years ago and uh, meet a need that he did then. A lot of people don't read Lewis now um, because they think he's too difficult, which surprises me. But uh, so I tried to do the same thing, give a kind of mere Christianity with a a different um, foil than that is the story foil. But it works out very nicely. It's been very well received, won a number of awards. Uh, And it's also, I have the non-Christian in my mind. There's no, there's no, there's not a bunch of Christian lingo. It doesn't feel like a Christian book. And uh, there's a lot of what I call soft apologetics 
mixed in, just like Lewis did in Mere Christianity. So that these two books are interesting in a sense that they stand in opposition, not that they oppose, but they stand in in opposing places. Tactics helps the, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. That's the subtitle. Um, it's it's a tool to help Christians engage to declare their faith and defend the faith. But the story of reality is the faith that they are to declare and to defend. So they they really they're like when I, they're in opposition. They're two they're two different pillars in a certain sense that supplement each other in a really good way. That sounds great. So if you guys haven't heard of those books or Gregory, I will definitely drop a link in the bio of this podcast And you episode? can call me Greg. You, Greg, okay. My, I, I, the only person that called me Gregory was my mother when she was angry yeah. at me. Yeah, that's how it is with me too, because <laughs> my name is Jennifer, but no one ever calls me Jennifer. <laughs> All right, Jen. Unless my mom when she's angry. Okay. Yeah. So we will be discussing Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As I always do, I will be reading out of the W.E.B. version of the Bible, but you can read out of whatever version you prefer to read out of. Grab that cup of coffee. Let's go ahead and start. Now these are the ordinances which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free without paying anything. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he is married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him forever. If a man sells his daughter to be a female servant, she shall not go out as the male servants do. If she doesn't please her master who has married her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. If he marries her to his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marital rights. If he doesn't do these three things for her, she may go free without paying any money. So, Greg, what stands out to you the most regarding this passage of Scripture? Well, it it kind of depends on your frame of mind here and your understanding of the culture of the ancient Near East. If I were just as a non-Christian to pick this up and read it myself, um, I would be shocked by it. And this is what happens with a lot of people. And some have said, if you want to leave Christianity, just read your Bible. <laughs> it's kind of an odd, odd kind of... Uh, bit of advice, but they're hostile to Christianity, and they think, well, the Bible proves that Christianity is barbaric if Christians are holding to the Old Testament in some sense, and this is the kind of thing that they go to. Now, I, I kind of have a, a little rule in, in my mind, and that is you can't criticize Christianity if you don't understand it, or in, my, in a broader sense, you can't criticize the Bible if you don't understand it, because what that means is people are going to be critical of something they don't understand. And if they really understood what was going on, they might not raise the criticism that they raise. This happens all the time in daily life. We bark at them. What did you do that for? What is going on? That's awful. And 
And then they say, wait, 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 you don't know the whole story. And then the whole story is given, and then people think, oh, that makes a difference. The same kind of thing is going on here. Now, you read from a translation. What was the translation you read from? The W.E.B. version. I think it's similar to kind of the New King James version a little bit. Okay, good. But the reason I ask is because it was an interesting way that some of the words were rendered. Verse 2 starts out, if you buy a Hebrew, and what was your word in your translation? Uh, servant. Yes. Okay. I'm... I'm really happy to hear that the WEB translation translated that word ebed, the Hebrew word, that way, because modern translations, ever since the, the turn of the 20th century, began translating ebed, slave. So before the turn of the 20th century, translations characteristically translated ebed, servant, and that's because that's what the word means. And in fact, it's interesting because when ebed is used of Moses, even in those newer translations, it's translated the servant of the Lord, though it's the same word. So ebed can mean a servant in an employee kind of way, or it can mean a slave in the kind of gruesome way that we think of slavery in light of the slavery that blacks experienced in the origins of this country. So this is one of the bits of confusion. So your translation is great in this regard because it sets the stage for what is an account of the obligations that employers have to their employees in the ancient Near Eastern terms. Now, in the ancient Near East, employees had absolute power uh, over those whom they owned, the slaves. There was nothing protecting them. And in the case of the law of Moses, I put it this way, the, the so-called slaves, the servants, they had union representation. <laughs> then the union representation was Moses in the law. I was going to say, I look at it as slavery existed back in the ancient days, and God was almost putting a limitation on slaves or servants in the in this sense. He was putting a limitation on it because people were probably very cruel. I mean, look at the Egyptians where the Israelites had just come out of. Right. So, right. I mean, that's kind of and, how I look at it. Yes. And this, this passage uh, reflects a contrast there. And in fact, this is the book of Exodus, so it is the, they're just like a couple of months out right. of their release <laughs> or their escape. And so with that in mind, God is setting down a set of principles that shows them that whatever servanthood is going to be part of our community, it's not going to be anything like what you just experienced. And by the way, Jen, this is the chief point of confusion um, that uh, people fall into when they just randomly read texts like this, or they find them on the internet, some atheist website, and they're saying, just read this, look at that. and Or they cite these little bits and pieces out of it. Look how ridiculous this is. They don't understand what was going on. As we work through this passage, Jen, there are going to be some people that are going to say, even the way you explained it, Kokel, I still don't like it. It still seems too harsh. It still seems too mean. And this is an example of what might be considered the arrogance of the present. Right. <laughs> uh, and all I mean by that is that we have a certain set of standards that have developed as cultures have gotten more restrained and more moral in some ways. 
as the Bible has progressed in its own history and we learn more and more and more, that influenced cultures as well. And so we are a culture that has been deeply influenced by the biblical worldview and the biblical ethic. And so our views now are more refined. But what we don't realize then, since we're comparing that to now, then to now, we think that's pretty barbaric. And what we ought to be doing is comparing then to then. <laughs> we ought to look at what God's commands are regarding this issue in light of everything that was being practiced all around them at the time. Right, and exactly. This, yes, and this was, this was um, absolutely monumental. This was so different because, like I said, now you have servants that have union representation. Right. They have rights. <laughs> and there, there are rules that they have to follow, and they are strict mm -hmm. rules that uh, take the welfare of the servant in mind for that servant's protection. This is 3,500 years ago, and the world was quite different then. And you only have that you have the foundations of biblical morality that are being laid in contrast to the rest of the culture. So that's going to be a very important point that your listeners need to keep in mind as we talk about this. Right. So I, I was wondering if you could elaborate more on verse eight. It says that uh, the slaves should be redeemed. Well, not even in verse eight. I think it says that a few times throughout this passage. But God is basically saying that once the servant is done with his time of serving, he should be released mm -hmm. after a certain amount of years, mm -hmm. which I find really interesting as well. That would, that would be completely different from the idea of slavery in uh, ancient times. Yes, that's right. Or, or slavery that we experienced here in the U.S., in America. And uh, again, it, this is the image that um, we have to guard against because there's something very different going on in this circumstance. The fact that the slave is released after seven years, remember in the law, there is the, the year of Jubilee. All debts are released after seven years. All obligations, all land that was purchased gets returned to its, uh, its, its original owner because this then creates stability for families and dynasties, family dynasties, etc. And so what we have here is there is an agreement made between a man, between two men, okay? And the, the agreement is that one man who has a financial need will indenture himself to another the slave, really the servant, and the master, really the employer. That's the kind of relationship this is. And the indentured period is for seven years. Incidentally, remember that Jacob had the same kind of relationship, and he was going to get paid for seven years of service, and the thing that he was going to receive was a woman, Rebecca. But he ended up getting Leah, you know, and that, that whole fiasco there, and he had to work another seven years for another. But see, th <laughs> there is a, a precedent to this idea right. that you work for this period of time and serve, and then you get a benefit that is agreed upon. And um, and so here, but after the seven years, the, the debts, the obligation stuff, as a general principle there, your jubilee, are then forgiven, surrendered. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the same kind of thing here. You, you see that seven-year commitment, and then the, the person is free of the obligation. Obligation. Now, in these this situation, there's a wage that's earned. Characteristically, as I understand it, there's a uh, they're certainly being taken care of, and so all their needs are being met, and they're making a wage for their service. This means they're able to put together a stockpile to provide for themselves. So when they are released after seven years, if they've saved well, 
now they have means to take care of themselves. Right. And so this whole provision in the first half of this section, Jen, is just to outline what a, a an employer-employee relationship looks like in the context of the ancient Near East under the Mosaic system, under the law that God gives. And indeed, it's not too much further here down in, down in verse 16, for example, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. I mean, this makes it clear that the kind of slavery that we experience in the Americas was absolutely forbidden by God. You can't go and kidnap somebody and then sell that person into servitude or keep that person for yourself in servitude. That's an absolutely different kind of circumstance than is being addressed here in this passage. Yes, that's absolutely right, because man-stealing was never considered okay in the uh, Old Testament. And we actually did talk about that briefly once, maybe during the time with uh, Joseph when we talked about that. But no, man-stealing or woman-stealing was not okay according to God or the Old Testament. But Greg, could you actually elaborate a little bit more on the next section of this uh, passage of Scripture that we're talking about for today? Now we have a shift, okay, and this is the, uh, and this is where it's interesting also how your translation um, translates it. I have the New American Standard, which I like in almost every case, but I like yours better in this case. Uh, first, because it translates Ebed as servant, which is appropriate under the circumstances here. Um, but also, could you read, yeah, verse 7 again to me out of your translation. Sure. It says, if a man sells his daughter to be a female servant, she shall not go out as the male servants do. If she doesn't please her master who has married her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He okay, shall good. Okay. Okay, good. This, <laughs> this is the key thing. See, my translation doesn't say uh, married her. It says who designated her for himself. No, it might be this is the precise translation of the words, but what happens is you miss what's going on, and your translation is giving us a little bit deeper understanding. When it says he designated for her, that means he has paid a dowry to get a wife. Right. <laughs> and uh, maybe he's an older man who's been widowed or divorced or something like that. But if a man gives his daughter as a female spouse is what it amounts to, even though it said servant, I mean, Ebed. So it is a servant because that's kind of the way wives were. They served their husbands in that context. But what is in view here is a marriage. She didn't go free after seven years. Why not? Married. They're married. <laughs> right. And uh, so she doesn't go free. And if if... Now, I'm going to just pause for a moment. You know, when Jesus talked about divorce uh, in Matthew chapter um, 19, I think it is, uh, he, he, he said that God hates divorce. Oh, then why did Moses give uh, a provision for it? Because you had a hardness of heart. And so there had to be a certificate that protected the woman. All right. She wasn't just cast out and uh, not able to fend for herself. And many of those women just had to opt for prostitution because there's no other way to make any money. And so what, what uh, Moses is describing here is that if uh, it, God threw him in the law, that if a, if a man uh, offers his daughter as a, as a wife, there's a dowry involved, of course, and uh, she becomes a servant to him as a wife. And after seven years, he doesn't get rid of her. What if he doesn't like her? Well, he can't cast her out. He can't get rid of her. He can let her be redeemed. Generally, kinship redeemer is somebody in the family who purchases someone out 
of their circumstances for their purposes. Okay, if you go back to uh, Ruth and, and Boaz, she was able to be married to someone in Boaz's fa- family that was the next in line. And so Boaz wanted to marry her, and he said, well, I'm kin to you, but you're first in line, according to the custom. Are you want to marry her? No. He said, well, then I'll marry her, and I'll redeem her. I'll pay a price so that she can be my wife. So if the husband turns out to be displeased with the woman that is now his wife, then she can be redeemed out. They can rescue her from that circumstance. Now, if she's not redeemed, he does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people. There's another protective Mm -hmm. element because of his unfairness to her. The WAB says he has dealt deceitfully with her. Okay, good, good. Because of his treacherous dealing with her. So it's similar to yours. If he designates her now for his son, and then she'll be a daughter to him, basically. But if he takes another wife, another woman, he may not reduce the first one's food. He cannot reduce her clothing or her conjugal right. He can't reduce what is duly hers under his household, which, by the way, includes sex. Okay. Now, the reason this is important, I think a lot of guys who's going to read this, they're going to think, well, why would any guy reduce the conjugal rights of another woman in his house, you know, and then have a way of sometimes a strange way of looking. But the reason here is because now he's got a new wife. Mm. She's like second. She's, she's hanging around. She can't be tossed out. But she has presumably she has no children mm-hmm. and children are the thing that gives her substance, meaning protection and everything in the long term in her home. Think of uh, think of all the problems with the patriarchs when there were barren moms and they were mad, you know, and so they got the, okay, get the slave girl. We're going to have a daughter through her. She'll be mine by proxy through her. So that helps you to understand all of the background of what's going on here. Right. So if he has this young lady as a new wife and he doesn't want her, I'm getting somebody else. You cannot deprive her of offspring. That's mm-hmm. the idea. And that's the point behind conjugal rights, which he might because he doesn't like her. You know, he's bugged mm-hmm. at her or whatever. He's, I'm getting a younger prettier version or something like that. You know, guys do that today. He can't deprive her. He can't cast her out so that she is uh, destitute and uh, no longer safe in society. And he, because she's not under the protection of a household and he can't uh, deny her offspring, the conjugal rights, the offspring that uh, will help take care of her in her old age kind of thing. I do want to mention something. Um, I've been thinking a lot recently about the difference between God's will and God's permissive will. And through the beginning of um, when you look at Genesis, at the very beginning, when he says he made one man and one woman, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, that was his will. But Mm -hmm. he allows people in the law because of the hardness of their hearts. This is his permissive will to allow a man to get married to another woman mm-hmm. or to allow divorce. This is in the permissive will because people's hearts are so hard. Yes. Yeah, that, and that's something I wanted to mention too. That's a great observation, Jen. And uh, and this is why they're kind of stopgap measures that are given. Uh, now we see later on in Revelation and as the nation of Israel is tutored over time by these laws that these laws get more precise uh, and and maybe even more demanding. And you see Jesus' view of divorce uh, and remarriage is quite different than what we see here. There's less latitude given, and that's because he is holding them more to the ideal, one man with one woman becoming one flesh 
for one lifetime, which it's very interesting given modern issues we have right now. Jesus is treating sex as binary. He is identifying that God's purposes are in marriage for a man and a woman. That's the way people have kids anyway, which is chapter one, be fruitful and multiply. So you see, these are kinds of things that are built into the original plan. Jesus is making reference to that helps inform biblically some of these other things. So when people say, well, Jesus never said anything about same-sex marriage. Well, that's not quite true. And um, and so we have a we, we have a lot going on just in that's that very simple, straightforward passage um, in Genesis 2 about God's understanding of the nature of things. Things got really bad, obviously, so he has to give the law to the nation of Israel so they do not go in the abominable direction in a whole host of ways as the rest of the people, so that they remain a holy people faithful to God to become an agent for salvation for all the rest of the peoples that have been dispersed by the mixing up of their languages, which is why you get the table of nations in Genesis 11. Well, that's a mess, you know, after the Tower of Babel and then everybody spread out. And the Genesis 12, you have the initiation of God's rescue plan with Abraham, and we call this the Abrahamic covenant. Those things are positioned there for a reason. Okay, now the rescue plan begins and it begins to develop and, and the plan was to make a great nation out of, out of Abraham and, and a protection to Abraham. So eventually he'll be uh, able to be a blessing to all the nations. And we understand that is Messiah. That's the new covenant. That's the blessing to all nations. But you got to have a nation first. Well, when did the nation develop? Well, in terms of numbers, in Egypt. Right. <laughs> then God miraculously takes them out and then he gives them a constitution. And the constitution for the nation is called the law of Moses. Over time, long periods of time, here's 500 years now from Abraham, you have God fulfilling the Abrahamic mm -hmm. promise to make this nation that now he's forming in such a way that they have good noble laws, right. especially in the area of servitude, uh, in contrast to the laws of the nation. So they will be different and shine as a light to the world. Mm -hmm. Exactly. This is all part of the backstory that the critic who flips open the Bible and reads a verse he doesn't like does not understand. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I want to mention uh, Greg is a debater as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he's, he's really good at uh, bringing these topics to light. Friends, if you would like to uh, take a look at Greg and everything that he does with uh, Stand to Reason, str.org, and uh, his books, Tactics, and the Story of Reality. Just take a look at the bio of this podcast episode. There will be links to those. But Greg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're so welcome. I had a great time uh, talking with someone who has the same name that I do, <laughs> family <laughs> name, so it's really cool. Though it's spelled differently. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. But friends, if you love this episode, please share it on your social media platforms and rate it five stars. But thank you guys so much for tuning in. Have a wonderful weekend. Happy listening and God bless.